My name's uh, Elizabeth Hawke, and this is the title of my paper, although yesterday I stumbled on what might be a better title, which is uh, What do uh, interpretive dance, ribbons, and getting chucked out of a club late at night um, have to do with navigating the world of alternative facts? I think that's probably slightly more pertinent to my talk today. Um, so my paper is a, a more theoretical reflection with some um, links to practice that are perhaps slightly superficial. So they were things that allowed me to make um, what I hope were interesting points uh, relating different theoretical perspectives with um, aspects of knowledge. What I want to do today is to use some of those points to dig a little bit deeper <coughs> into practice and to um, what I actually do to my students. And I was quite um, interested at uh, last weekend I saw a piece by Nick Hillman where he was saying the role of higher education is to take students apart and then put them back together. And I, I've feel slightly more justified in my approach now. So um, this is from my abstract. So this is this is sort of like my my kind of mission statement for this talk. So I'm arguing that knowledge is not a passive product. It's not something that we can bestow on people, that we can give to people. It's a very active um, and a slightly intangible phenomenon. Um, and that's kind of my starting point. So that's what I'm, I'm taking from uh, the beginning of my paper. So to we help you a little bit understand where I'm coming from, a little bit about my context. So I'm a principal teaching fellow at Imperial College. Imperial is a STEM specialist institution, so we have science, engineering, medicine. Um, we don't have uh, degrees in the humanities, so we have quite a um, sort of isolated student body in terms of their access to different types of ideas. Uh, I work on a programme called Imperial Horizons, so I don't deliver degree topics, although our our range of modules that are open to all students at the college can be taken for degree credit. So they can be integrated, but they can also be taken as extra credit modules. Um, and our programme is open to all students, so it's cross-faculty. We have protected timetable slots, so every student is equally able to take any module they want. So we have truly multidisciplinary classes, and we never know quite what mix we're going to have. But they are divided by year group, so we, we have um, some progression within our modules. Uh, Imperial Horizons programme incorporates language learning, um, humanities, my colleagues here from the humanities section, uh, but my part of it is called Changemakers, and these are very pragmatic courses. So they are led by our students' natural desire to learn about the world, um, and they look at who the student is, what the student can do, how they can impact the world, um, and it's very much a focus on process rather than content. So the students make all of their own decisions about what they're going to study, and we just suggest how they might approach it. And all of our modules have been developed using um, this learning approach, which we've called Live, Love, Learn, which if you have any knowledge of Imperial, will appreciate that's very unimperial. Um, and I, I just love saying that when I'm at college. Um, so just <laughs> tell you a little bit about that. So this is basically where I'm coming from. Everything, I live and breathe this. So if you can uh, bear with me on this, then everything else hopefully will make sense. So um, I'm all about authenticity, so I don't want to tell my students something if it's not what my students are ready to hear or think. Um, it doesn't mean I don't want them to do challenging things, but I want to make sure that they can get to that space to interact with it in a really genuine way. As I've said, the courses have uh, modules, sorry, modules now, modules have uh, so much uh, flexibility. Every choice is made by the students. It's obviously a set range of options, so I, I have a framework within which the students make choices. But they can choose the topic, they can choose what type of assessment they want to present, um, and they can choose how they structure their time in class. And some of those decisions are made on an individual basis, some in teams, and some as a cohort. Um, I'm going to hopefully uh, look at one or two of those. All the learning is very active. 
So we have a challenge in our programme that we teach at four o'clock and our students have been in lectures since 9am. And they're not always fresh as daisies at 4pm. Uh, and so we do a lot of very active learning. Um, best thing, I think, is to get people standing up. I'm not going to do it to you, so don't worry. <laughs> to get people standing up, we have a lot of kinesthetic things. Um, we do a lot of emotional learning with our students, which is something that I don't tell them we're doing because it would frighten them. But uh, we do engage a lot of um, emotional uh, aspects to their thinking. I've got some good examples of that. Um, as I said, it's very democratic, so there's lots of choice and decision-making and negotiation. And there's also a lot of student reflection and reflexive activity. And then finally, we're very process-based, so we're always assessing the methods the students are using, the way they're working, the process they've gone on, the journey, rather than what they actually produce at the end. So it is assessed, but that's not the core aim of our programme. So, this is very <coughs> reductive, but this is helpful to me to think about it like this. So, I think of knowledge as being information and knowing, and the knowing part is what fascinates me, and the knowing is about the person who knows. So I don't think, for me, in my classes, and I'm not saying this should be the whole way for the whole of education, and anybody else who teaches anyway differently, that's great, but for me, I can't not have the student as the centre of that, because if I'm going to take them on a journey, I need to know where they are, who they are, where they're going. Um, so that's the biggest challenge, is to work with the students to create this active sense of knowing that is more than just accepting a piece of information. So I think um, a lot of their learning experiences receiving individual pieces of information. It's like things being posted into a letterbox. It's up to the student what they do with it when they get it. They have to make sense of it. They have to organise it somehow. And I want to make that part of the process really explicit. And I want to do that with the students. So we have this sort of shared journey of knowing. So I'm going to use examples from the same uh, course that I used in the paper. But I have the benefit now of having completed my fifth uh, iteration of the course, whereas when I was writing I was on my fourth, and the fifth is always the best. Um, so this is uh, a third, fourth year undergraduate module called Lessons from History. I'm not teaching the students history, but I'm using some of the tools of inquiry from um, a disciplinary context of history to help the students think about different types of information, where it comes from, whether it's reliable, different types of evidence, how they can build an understanding. This course is organised in a traditional team-based learning format with some slight tweaks to how the students do the different elements. But it means that the students work in a fixed team slash gang throughout the entire uh, course. They become very, very tightly knitted in these um, groups. They work through a repeating cycle of tasks. So the first tasks are always about discovery. So we look at an event together, we think about what we already know, what the gaps in our knowledge are, how we can find information, what might be important, are there different narratives within a particular event. The students then work on building what we call a knowledge base. So they write um, what they think you would need to know to be able to say that you know. So the only instruction they have is that if I met them at a dinner party in three years' time, and they said at the table, oh, this is my old teacher, Elizabeth, and she taught me about Chernobyl, and then they said something really daft about the Chernobyl explosion, they haven't learned enough. So they need to be able to hold their own, to have a degree of awareness about something, but not be an expert. And they have to negotiate that over these different cycles with the different events that we look at. And to begin with, some of the students will produce masses of information, some of them will produce something really small, and they self-moderate by looking at what each other have done, and all of the feedback is public, so they can see how other students have um, had feedback. And they, they self-moderate over the time, so that by the end, they're producing these really well-thought-out, interesting, quirky, 
knowledge bases that show something more than just a collection of information. Uh, and then finally, they do an application task where they write a question that they answer using five pieces of evidence. Um, and they have to write that their own question. And we push them towards um, moving away from purely factual questions towards questions that have an ethical or a moral element to them. Um, and we had one uh, year where we had this particular team who got very stuck. And so every time when they um, did the, a new cycle, they get the same feedback. And it was, it was a writing problem, really, rather than a thinking problem. But they took it in a really interesting way. And they were, they were a team of six, so they decided to listen to two sub-teams and take a different approach for the next cycle to see who could do better. Because they couldn't agree on why they weren't getting better feedback. And so one group decided that they should write with emotion, just with emotion. And the other group decided that's ridiculous, and they were going to stick to facts, and they were going to nail the facts. And they called themselves the robots, and so the emotion sub-team called themselves the lovebots. And um, they had this competition. And what was really interesting was that the group that stuck to facts knew they had to beat the emotion team. So they, they really dug in, and they, they didn't just present facts, they presented facts that they felt really passionately about. And so what sang through their writing was emotion. And the group that tried to write with just emotion were so terrified of looking silly that it, they, they sort of wrote with no emotion. And it was the most fascinating kind of paradox at the end. Um, but they really learned a lot from that. And um, that's kind of what we're pushing them towards. But I'm digressing a little bit. Um, so these are just some of the topics that we do. So we try and do things that are technical. So the first one is Chernobyl. It's in their wheelhouse. I'll have students sitting there who are nuclear engineers and they're like, yes, this is, I can do this. And then they get maybe not the mark they're expecting and then they have to think, what haven't I done? And then we move through things that are more social, LA riots, um, natural disasters, health, and then they also have two choice um, cycles. So one where the individual teams choose a different topic each, and then we pair the teams and they challenge each other to understand each other's topics. And then one where the whole class votes and they pick a final topic. So um, this is just something from my paper to show that I, I, I'm linking this to my paper. <laughs> there is relevance to what I'm saying. So um, I'm really interested in what goes on inside the students. I'm not really so interested about what I'm telling them. I, I'm not an expert on Chernobyl and LA riots, but I think I can make them have a really interesting experience thinking about those things. So I'm, I really want to know what's going on under the hood. So with the LA riots, my first question to the students is, what would it take for you to riot? And they always just say, well, I've, I wouldn't. It's breaking the law and I, I don't care about anything enough, unless it's nuclear physics. And um, we have this sort of big discussion and we, we, we get into the legalities and the ethics and the morality, but they don't have a real sense of what it would be to feel that strongly about something. And they don't have a sense of why people would do something. Do, does anyone know who um, the person on the right is? So this is Anna DeVere Smith, and um, she's an American actress, and she wrote a one-woman play about the LA riots where she interviewed all sorts of different people from all the different um, sides, from law enforcement, from victims, from rioters. And she performs this one-man play by embodying each of the people that she's interviewed. And she reads or speaks their words with their body language and with their voice. And it's incredibly powerful and slightly strange. And I went to a conference and um, we were shown some clips of this. And then they did this activity to us. And this conference was during the, the very first time I taught this course. And I went home and changed the next three weeks of the course to do it to the students, because I was sort of, I just thought it was great. But it's also terrifying. So I'm doing this thing where I take my science students and we do some drama. So we start off, uh, I ask for volunteers, the volunteers come to the front, and they are observers. 
and the rest of the students have to think different emotional stories. So we start off with a happy story, so everybody's thinking of something happy. The observers are looking at their body language and they're making notes on the board, everyone's relaxed, there's lots of movement, people are giggling, also because they're nervous. And then we work through different emotions and we end up with um, students thinking of an injustice that they've suffered. So it can be anything from putting a pound in a Coke machine and it not giving you a can of Coke to being wrongly accused of something or um, suffering something that you didn't deserve. And they think this all standing in a room and it works better if we're in a really small room because it heightens the sense. And when we go, for example, from happy to the most boring experience you've ever had, it's like someone sucked all the air out of the room and you can feel it, it's tangible. And then when we go to injustice, suddenly all of the, the limbs are straightened and fixed and people are staring straight ahead. So they do this as a big group, then they go into pairs and somebody uh, is the thinker and somebody is the watcher. And we, we have had feedback at every point of what people have been observing and thinking. But when we do it in pairs, we're not asking the observers what they've observed, what they've <coughs> felt while they were observing. And quite often they'll say, well, I started to feel really worried for the person. I felt really sad that they'd had some experience that they don't know what the experience is yet because it's all inside minds. But I've, I felt something about this experience and I, I wanted to help or comfort or... And that's fantastic because now we're starting to move away from um, just the mechanical observing to a, a felt observing. After they've done that, I cross my fingers and I say, would anybody like to share their injustice with the class? And we've done a bit of preamble about how we're going to be very supportive and respectful and don't share something that you're not ready to share. And I never know what's going to come up. And sometimes it's fantastic and it works really well. And sometimes it's less fantastic. So the best one that we ever had was a student that had been thrown out of a club. So she had um, been in a club having a good time with her friends and someone had pushed her and she had fallen into a bouncer and spilt her drink on the bouncer. And the bouncer had um, pushed her around a bit in the club and humiliated her in front of her friends, then picked her up bodily, took her to the entrance and threw her into the street. And she told this story and she was tearing up and it was very emotional for her. And the whole room felt this and they felt angry for her. And then someone said, well, which, which club was this? I, I think we should, we should go, did you get the bouncer's name? Have you reported it to the police? And if I can just get them to just, just before they actually march out and go to the club, that's the moment when they've understood something about rioting. And from that moment, all the facts that they've been gathering mean something different to them. Um, so that's just one example. And it doesn't always work that brilliantly. So um, this is interesting because um, Williamson is talking about this um, idea that it's, it's the gaps, it's the grit, it's the friction, it's the, the bits that don't quite work that actually help you move from one type of understanding to something that's richer and to this real sense of knowing. Um, and this uh, drama activity wasn't going terribly well this year. I was in a really big room. I could see the things happening, but it wasn't as rich for the students to feel. And I could, I could just tell they weren't quite on board with me. They were doing it because I told them to. And they were sort of saying the right things, but I knew they weren't feeling it. Um, and one of these little wrinkles occurred. So uh, one of my students who has, uh, so it's, because it's an unusual course and I don't teach them about Chernobyl in the first session, they get quite upset. And he'd been to me repeatedly for four weeks in a row saying, I haven't learned anything yet. You haven't taught me anything. I don't understand what's going on here. I don't like it. And I was like, just bear with me. It will make sense. And we came to this session and he was still feeling like that. So when we started the pair work, 
he told his partner to think about a happy experience when everybody else was thinking about their injustice. And he thought he was being smart and it was going to ruin it and it was going to be hilarious. And then halfway through, he realised that his person he was looking at was completely different to all the other people in the room. And so seeing that difference in the flesh moved him from disbelieving to believing and then trying to understand and know. So then he corrected his partner and told his partner to think about an injustice instead. He saw the switch even in his partner. And then, thank God, he decided to share that with the whole class. <laughs> um, because his, just, just that one person not believing was sort of infecting everybody. And he was like, I thought this was nonsense and I thought it wasn't working and I thought it was rubbish. And then I did this thing and okay, I'm really stupid and I'm sorry I did it. But it showed me that there is something here. Um, and it kind of saved the whole day. And then he, he came up and shared something, which wasn't a brilliant injustice and didn't quite take us to that same place. But because of his earlier intervention, the students got there anyway. So some of these things that I'm talking about are high risk. And they don't always work. And they don't always come off. But they don't always need to work in that sense. And sometimes just a few seeds from something combined with something else later on can be enough. Um, so I really wanted to uh, include um, a little bit of leotard because our students um, get a lot of efficiency in their knowledge. So if you ask them what it means to know something, they would describe understanding something technically. Um, and even if it's something that isn't a technical subject, so like with the historical events that we're looking at, understanding the event for them would be knowing the date, how many people, what happened, it wouldn't be any of the more moral, ethical, or aesthetic things. And so that's what I'm trying to push them to include. So um, in our final cycle before Christmas, the students pick their own disasters. So we've got different teams working on different disasters. Um, I'm trying to lighten the load because they've got a lot of deadlines in their core degree studies. So these cycles are entirely completed within class. Uh, and we finish with presentations. So instead of writing a an answer to a question, the students ask a question of another team and they present an answer. And the idea is that it's kind of <coughs> off, off the cuff. Um, we'd done a, an activity earlier in the class that hadn't taken as long as I thought and I had like a half an hour gap. So I said, well, we usually do this off the cuff, but I think, you know, you've got half an hour, you could prepare something. And I think it should be more than a presentation. And I was kind of winging it and I was like, it should be something interpretive. And that's all I said. And I thought I was going to get presentations with some jazz hands, but I didn't. What I got was interpretive dance, a play, a game show, a debate, um, and two slightly less successful attempts at uh, doing more. Uh, so the guys at the top, they disappeared into the corridor for half an hour and came back with a soundtrack, uh, a narration, and a dance. And uh, they were dancing the Lake Nyos eruption, which uh, was in Cameroon when there was a limnic eruption, a big CO2 bubble at the bottom of a lake that came up and suffocated the whole population. Uh, and they conveyed in that the importance of local knowledge. So historically, people hadn't lived near the lake because there was a high chance of dying. But in modern times, people had started populating those areas. And that's why there was such a death toll. Uh, the events, the French engineers that came. We had French engineers, <laughs> all of them doing that. Uh, French engineers that came uh, to degas the lake. Uh, and the effect on the rest of the class was astonishing. So they have the, the knowledge base with the facts safe on our um, VLE, so all the students can access that. But the students, um, A, were shocked that people were dancing at them, <laughs> which is quite a thing. 
at half past five on a Thursday afternoon, and um, B, that they, they, they'd gained some kind of other understanding of what had happened. It didn't matter where Lake Nyos was, that wasn't the important thing, it didn't matter how many people had died, but they completely bought the story of it. Um, and these guys, um, so these guys have asked these guys a question, and uh, the guy in yellow is the cheeky guy. Um, and so he, he had written the question and he wanted to ask the Venezuelan mudslide team, was nature trying to subvert Christmas by inducing a landslide? And they were all like, mm, can we ask it, can we ask it? And I was like, it's your question, if that's what you want to ask. But that question then seemed to unlock all the other groups and they all revised their questions and made their questions a bit jazzier. Um, and I was worried because I didn't know how they would answer that question. And they actually answered it by rewriting a Christmas carol uh, with the, the ghost of past, future and present being nature and Scrooge being urbanising man. Um, and it was really powerful and it went on for nearly half an hour. Um, but everybody sat there in silence and it was astonishingly captivating. And this guy who's Scrooge hadn't joined in with anything until this point. And all of a sudden, he was this complete character um, and fully scripted. And we, that's also a very neurodiverse group. So a lot of people who don't like speaking in public, a lot of people who don't like writing, and they were reading off. So the person that doesn't like reading was reading the narration. It was just a, an astonishing thing for lots of reasons. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't quite anticipate that happening, but it did. Um, the next cycle after Christmas, Indian Ocean Tsunami, I get a lot of lists of how many people died, how many countries, but nobody really ever previously seemed to attach meaning to that. So this time I asked them to produce something physical, instead of their knowledge base on the computer with all the lists of the sources, I said I just want a source list, it doesn't have to be annotated this time, but what I want is some physical thing that you're going to create in two weeks that's going to tell us about um, the tsunami. So they had a week of planning and experimenting. I took a big bag of stuff, card, rope, paper, pipe cleaners um, and stuff. And then this group produced an origami tsunami. The interesting thing about this is that it was supposed to demonstrate scale and it was this big. It is true scale, but I, I was going for like big and all my movements were, we've got this room and you could make something amazing and you could use the walls or the floor and then it's like this big. Um, but they actually made these origami waves that were all measured and calculated and were the height of the waves in the different locations. I and mean, this was a kind of map of Southeast Asia. And they had the level of regeneration by the level of repair of the houses and um, financial toll. Uh, and um, it was good. It didn't really show the impact in quite the way <coughs> they anticipated. We had another group who um, were very unimaginative and I just kept saying to them ambition, ambition, ambition. And they didn't quite get there. They produced something quite similar to this. It was a map-based um, thing with um, jars of different fluids that represented different metrics. But it was very difficult to... You couldn't look at it and understand something. You had to really know what they were doing. Then we had one group who um, decided to make an upside-down map so they asked me to buy them a sheet, I bought them a sheet. They worked every second of that second session and the deadline was 10 to 6 and they were finished at 10 to 6 to the second. They were sticking the last bits on. It was phenomenal and we combined the teams so these were like double team efforts. So this was a group of 10 students 
like I've never seen people work so hard and so in such like well-organized way to complete something quite complex. Um, they lifted it up and the idea was that you walked under the tsunami wave. So the blue sheet is a wave and it's falling down on you. And then all of their metrics hang down. So they have these sort of triangles, which are things like the economic impact, um, wave height, local deaths, and then the strings of the flags are deaths um, by country. So then you see the impact across the whole globe rather than just in Southeast Asia. Um, and every country had the flag coloured in on both sides um, and strung, and the heights of the flags were different things, and the lengths of the streamers were different. Uh, where the actual death tolls in the countries where uh, there was the impact from the tsunami. And the whole class was just walking underneath this sheet. <coughs> and it, the, the imperfections of it, like they, they couldn't quite hold it high enough and so it was touching people, but that was kind of part of it because it was this sense of being overwhelmed by this amazingly powerful phenomenon. Um, so that was very exciting. Um, then just to... to counterbalance this and to tail it off. Um, when we're thinking about learning rather than knowledge, um, we sort of think that there's a hierarchy, so accepting discrete pieces of information to something really complex and integrated. And so I thought it would be quite interesting to challenge the students by taking them back to the start. And in the second part of the course, the students can vote for how many cycles they do, depending on how well they feel they've accomplished the different elements of the cycles. So they can choose to do more or less writing tasks. Um, and one of the sets of options they came up with, there was a spare week. I was like, well, we can do that, and it'll be a mystery week. I had no idea what a mystery week could be, but um, they, they voted for that, so then I had to do a mystery week. Uh, so in the mystery week, um, we did the face facts challenge. So I took three um, additional events. I took 10 facts from each event that were fairly, they're specific, but they're quite abstract. And we um, face-facted each student, and they were all walking around. The first thing we had to do was to identify what fact was on their face. Then they had to identify other people who had facts that could relate to the same event as their fact, and they had to work out what the events were. So I took all of the meaning away and gave them just the things they thought they wanted at the start of the course. I just need to know when it was, how much it was, who it was. So I gave them that information, and they found it incredibly difficult to work out who they belonged to, and they had to tell their once they got into their groups and we'd identified roughly who went with who, they had to tell their family story by their face facts and relate each fact to the event. Um, and that was really nice because it totally showed them that the thing that they thought they wanted at the start, now they didn't want anymore. They, they knew that there was something else that went with it. Um, and these were actually events that students in previous years had studied in their team choice. And so I was able to anonymise and give them the knowledge bases that the previous year's students had produced. So after they did this event, they had then these free knowledge bases that they could use. And they do a final capstone essay at the end of the course where they draw on various um, events that they've studied. So to finish, um, I was inspired by a paper, I think it was... I think it was in teaching and higher education, um, about uh, using stories to evaluate at the end of the course. I thought, what the hell, mystery week, write some stories. So I got them to, in their groups, write stories. And what I really wanted to find out about was their sense of their teams and how their teams had evolved and the challenges that the course presented and how they'd overcome them. I asked them to use a traditional story structure and I gave them a plot outline and they had to fill in how their story would meet the different elements of a standard plot. I also gave them a character list um, that had various 
traditional, I only page prop character types. So they had to have a princess, and they spent ages giggling over who was going to be the princess in each team. But three of the um, stories, so they, they drew the stories, and then I realised I couldn't understand what they'd drawn, so then they, they told the stories and we recorded their tellings. Um, three of the stories had um, knowledge as the princess, so knowledge had become a character within their stories. I had <coughs> asked for this and I hadn't pushed them in this direction, so it really surprised me. Um, the, first, the first story um, was about me being an evil chancellor who needed to be defeated. And I lived in a tower and I would swoop down on the districts, which were the teams, and terrorise them. And they had tried endlessly to defeat me with information. No matter how much information they gave me, I could not be defeated. And then they realised they needed to make a weapon called knowledge. And that weapon would trap me in my tower. And it did, and then I never darkened their door again. Um, and then there were two little kind of quest-type stories where they had to either rescue the princess knowledge or there was this character called um, knowledge that they had to try and find and the clues they got from doing different challenges would help them to find. And so that kind of slightly astonished me because I, I did all, this, all these things with the students but I was never particularly explicit. I don't think I used the word knowledge apart from a knowledge base. It was about meaning and value and digging into themselves and finding a way to relate things to themselves. So I don't know if that's a happy accident, but it pleased me. Um, mm -hmm. So that was the end. Thank you very much for listening.